Okay, we are picking up where we left off last week in the middle of Romans chapter 6. But as a preamble, don't you find it extraordinary how often the Sunday sermon reflects what we're teaching here and we're not in collusion with each other. I had no idea that um, uh, we'd be quoting from the church's <laughs> statement of faith, which I had asked you to look at last week. Um, Philip and Valerie had asked me during the week uh, about the church's statement of faith, and I had not realized, I do now, that it's based on the Gospel Coalition's statement of faith. It's almost verbatim. The only difference is that our church's statement of faith has a clause 14 on marriage, stating that marriage is between male and female, man and woman. And I imagine that was done by the elders after the overfall um, ruling about uh, gay marriage. But other than that, you can see uh, its details. And apparently it was different years ago that the Camelback uh, Statement of Faith was different many years ago, but they... Prior to Gospel Okay, so that would be 30 years ago. Um, yeah, that they uh, just simply adopted that, which is fine because it's a very good Statement of Faith. Um, but then to be quoting from it, it's like, okay, yeah, what can we do this week that we'll find in next week's class? Um, It's possible. Pa Pastor Tim was asked to write the, um, the booklet on the doctrine of the church for the Gospel Coalition that was published uh, many years ago. And so it may be that that's where the connection came. Anyway, let's start out with where we are in um, chapter 6, verse 15. And if you have your Bible open, we are pro we're going to be referring to earlier verses in the uh, chapter. I just didn't figure I needed to keep printing out the previous uh, text as well. Chapter 6, verse 15 starts with a question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Well... In verse 14, he had written, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And then he just writes, Well, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And you ask, Okay, why is he asking this question? Didn't he already ask this question in chapter 6, verse 1? Pull out your Bible and look at that you will notice they are not identical questions, but they have the identical answer. Chapter 6, verse 1 reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 15 says, Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now, they sound like they're the same question, but they're not. They're close, but there's a difference. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace me abound? Basically means a lifestyle choice that I can do whatever I want because I'm forgiven for whatever I do. And as I wrote here, so does that mean it's okay to lose my temper, to rent, to spew hateful invectives about something because I know as soon as I finish my sentence I will be instantly forgiven. Is that okay? God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> Very good. And yet, don't we kind of think that? Practically? Oh, I shouldn't have said that, but oh, God will forgive me. Yeah, he will, or dead. The second question is, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's more of a moment-by-moment -moment, um, uh, 
classification of behavior. It's similar, but not identical. But the answer is the same. In other words, there were people within the Roman church, people probably in the Corinthian church where Paul was writing this from, who said, oh good, I am now a believer, I can still go visit the temple prostitutes. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I'm forgiven. And Paul said, no, 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 no. And then there's others who are saying, well, yeah, you're saved, but it's not quite enough. And even Pastor Jim referred to it today. He said, there are those who will say, okay, yeah, you're saved by grace, but if you do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, then God will be happy with you. That's to quote Pastor Jim. The Judaizers in Galatia, which is all throughout the book of Galatians, were saying that you had to follow the law, the Mosaic law, in addition to following Christ. So he's keeps saying there's not a law plus Jesus equals grace formula. There is a Jesus equals grace formula. There's no Jesus and. And here it is again, but done in a different way. I was even mentioning this to Lisa last night as I was starting to put all this together. The challenge of teaching Romans is that Paul is repeating himself frequently. Or how shall I say, over and 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 over again. And yet each time he's repeating himself, he's saying it just a little differently. It's as if he's got a classroom of different styles of learners. You say it one way, this half of the class goes, yeah, whatever. But this half of the class, all the light bulbs go off. And then he says it another way, and the middle part of the class goes, oh. And this group is still, sorry. I'm just just <laughs> let's, let's do it the other way. <laughs> uh, it's like, I don't get it. And then the third time he says it, you go, oh, now all the light bulbs are on in the room. But he has had to say it, and the first group is going, why is he saying this again? We already got it. Well, isn't that what a good teacher does? A good teacher repeats the truths, but sometimes comes at it from a different direction. Here, you've got Paul in Galatians dealing with the challenges between law and grace. Then you have the Corinthians that were dealing with licentious behavior inside the church. He's now in Corinth writing to Rome to people he'd never met saying there's no law plus grace. And don't get this wrong. Verses 1 through 14 of chapter 6 shows that trust in Christ shares means that we then share in the death and resurrection. We are saved. Verses 15 to 23 asks or tries to answer the question, now what? How do we then live with the responsibilities that we've been given? Yes? It's so, yeah. It's it is different. It it's coming up with the same answer, right? Which is what Andrew said. God forbid. Older passages. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. With that first one too, it says, "For the more we sin, the greater the grace we're going to have." And we're told in Scripture that God gives us all the grace we need for this day. It's not anything that we right. do that will increase His grace. He gives what we need. Day. That's and right. So I find that very um, um, 
like egotistical that they think they can do this and, and God will just give them what they need, like rain. Sure, sure. The challenge that we have, and it's our humanity. Our humanity is uncomfortable with a lack of rules. Now let's now let's let's just let's do a little bit of philosophical uh, conversation here, and please jump in because I am no authority here. I'm just saying let's let's talk about it. Let's imagine there's no scriptures. Well, there's no Bible. There's no Christianity. Oh yeah, yeah. Imagine, imagine America in the 21st century. Okay. No, I Oh yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, good old John Lennon. Yeah, there you go. Would we create the laws that we have now to modify or regu regulate behavior between humans? The answer is probably yes. Because something would come up and we'd say, well, we got to, you know, we got to say this is wrong. And then we need to codify it. And then we need to um, adjudicate it. We need to make sure it's, uh, there's authority over it. We would create rules. Just it's how we're wired. Then it starts getting homeowners association level. Your grass cannot be higher than three and three quarter inches. And if it is, we can fine you because we need to have everyone looking the same. Why are we doing this? Well, there's, you, there's usually method or reasons that seem uh, natural or normal or reasonable. But then after a while, you're going, oh, come on. My grass is three and seven eighths inches. You can't find me for that. You where my sister lived in North Scottsdale, and they had like a plant pallet for your for your yard, and it had these certain desert plants. So she went to the nursery, bought some desert plants that apparently were not on that list, and got the notice and had to take those out. But it's that bad. Well, oh I actually had a friend of mine was in a corporate environment with the cubicle and they had cubicle police <laughs> who would come in and say you do not have the required company coffee cup <laughs> or your cubicle is not rated to have two chairs take one of them out and he goes yeah I just brought it in here so we could have a meeting he says yep get it out and you go okay at certain point you this is all laughable right what we're talking about here is not laughable. But this is God saying you are not under the Mosaic law of the 613 laws that the Pharisees made sure that everyone would follow and that if you met all 613 of them, you were considered holy. But they're almost impossible to follow perfectly. So to overcome that, then you had to sacrifice and do other things to fix the problem. That's the world in which this conversation is going on. But where it gets interesting, I wrote here, I said, we create our own codes of morality and make them definition of moral character. For example, Dwight L. Moody could not stand Charles Spurgeon because Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. He felt that that was a character flaw or a moral failing. Or think of those who are shocked when they see a picture of C.S. Lewis smoking a pipe or drinking a glass of wine. <gasps> like, okay, by what definition? Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that just society? You know, uh, what, what is it in, in Germany? Beer is considered like water. It's in France, a, it's wine. Hmm? In France, wine is considered like water. 
French wine. I mean, it's just there's these cultural things you have to go, well, what, what's right, what's wrong? Yeah, here I am trying to, I'm, all I'm doing is muddying the waters for you all. Because now we have to ask the question about the uh, uh, Sharia law for the Islam. The absolutely hard line of every one of you ladies need to be wearing a burqa. I cannot be seeing your face. Because you're tempting me. So we need to end that right here, right now. Is that right? Is that wrong? Hmm. Well, obviously it's beyond the scope of our class today. Other than to say, this is some of what Paul's struggling with within the cultural definitions because the culture had said licentious behavior is normal and is okay. Visiting the, the local temple prostitutes in Corinth was normal. And no, it's not normal. It's not under God's will or God's law. We go to Romans chapter 1 and you see how he's just lays it all out, how they just simply lost their moorings completely. So verse 16, Paul brings in a new, I, I wouldn't say new, but an interesting another, another way to look at this. He says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So right there you have the word obey all over the place. It shows up again in uh, verse 17. The concept of obedience is very much a slave to master concept. A function of a slave is to obey the word and the will of a master. And yet, the scripture is full of admonitions to obey God's will. Abraham, after he obeyed God to bring his son Isaac to sacrifice, did not question it. Then God brought an alternative for that so that Isaac could live. And then it says in Genesis 22, verse 18, Abraham, you will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. It's that same word that we see here. To obey the will of a master or want someone in authority. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about the concept of Paul using the word slave before, but as a good teacher, I need to repeat it <laughs> because we did this on our very first session of Rome, on Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Because the second word of Romans is the word slave, it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The actual Greek word is Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Some translations have it as bondservant because we're all trying to avoid the word slave because of all the baggage that comes into it in our, uh, in our English culture. But that's what the word means. It means slave. And so now Paul is saying before you were slaves to sin and now, let's just keep reading, verse 17, but thanks be to God who once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the standard of teaching which you were committed, verse 18, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So he's contrasting slaves of sin with slaves of righteousness. So I did a little bit of digging around just for the sake of our conversation here. Slavery in the United States was not the founding of the United States, as some would like to say. Um, what's the year, 16 something or other? 
That's crazy talk. Um, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which stated that all of the slaves in the rebellious states, meaning the South, were declared free by the US government. Now, did that mean they were immediately free? Well, of course not. But legally, yes. Um, but they were declared that, and there's estimates that there was upwards of 3.5 million that were overnight declared free by the Emancipation Proclamation. It wasn't for two more years till after the Civil War was over that the 13th Amendment was ratified on December 18th, which made the freedom of all people a part of our Constitution. When that happened, it freed a whole nother group of slaves that were in Kentucky and Delaware and New Hampshire and any other place that they did not have a constitutional freedom. They were tactically free in some places, but not in all. It wasn't the law of the land. It became the law of the land. And you might say, great, that means in 1865, all slavery in the United States ended forever. Depends on your definition of slavery. Um, they estimate that there's approximately 400,000 in the United States right now that are in some form of slavery. Think of human trafficking. And that's both in forced labor and in the sex trade. These are people that are being used against their will and are being dehumanized and un, you know, cast off when they're used up. It's, it, this particular statistical thing that I read comes from Australia. It's not even a US-based thing. It's an Australian global kind of thing trying to do, looking at human trafficking around the country, around the world. So slavery as that definition is still around. But that isn't what scripture is talking about at all. We make it that, which is why we try to avoid reading the word slave in our scripture, because we have this other meaning that's placed here. But spiritually, every single one of us in this room is spiritually a slave. <coughs> It's just a slave of whom? You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And that is right here, right in the middle of our text. You can't miss it. You can't even argue with it. <laughs> to use, uh, Pastor Jim didn't get there, he almost did. I was waiting for him to quote Alistair Begg. Because Alistair Begg will say, the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing when you come to Scripture. So if it's plain, it's probably pretty clear that that's the main thing. And if it's the main thing, it's probably plain for you to see. Here, it's very clear. You either one or the other. There's no in between. So, here's my question for the class. I actually wrote this in my notes. I said, stop what you're saying and ask the class this question. See if they can figure it out. Is it really that cut and dried? Is it really? Is it that black and white? Is it that right and wrong? Is, aren't there gray areas? I mean, come on, let's... Let's just be modern thinkers here. Aren't there gray areas in life? I mean, what about the phrase, but I'm not hurting anyone? If I'm doing this, the only person you could say I could be hurting is me, so what's wrong with it? Or how about this one? I am the master of my own destiny. You can't tell me 
what's right or wrong. How do you respond to that? Is it that cut and dried? Is it that dramatic? Are there middle areas? Now I'm not going to talk. I'm going to <laughs> let the tape just have total silence while you guys come up with the brilliant answer. But seriously, it's a question we have to answer in this day and age. Because absolutes are being challenged at every turn. Are there such things, is there such a thing as absolutes or absolute truth? Yes. Prove it. How, 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 how can you say that? I'm sorry, I'm, no, I'm, okay. I'm just, just putting you, you, you spoke up, so you get to be the one to answer. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's talk about this among ourselves. said. Kind of keys off of what Pastor Jim was saying. If we don't like it, we tear it out of our Bible and saying, eh, I'm not so sure I can accept that. Well, who's making that determination? We are. Yeah. Oh, that's nice, Jeff, to get the answer. I think there is a, um, I think there is biblical truth. That's why you say sola scriptura. I guess since there's gray areas, that mean, okay, what do we do about um, some of the Old Testament uh, laws? You, know, you, mm -hmm. you uh, should not eat pork. You right. should not eat pork, whereas there's whole cultures that Christ opened the gates, all nations shall come in. Right. In the Chinese society, pork is like like the basic meat they're going to have when they have their vegetables with a little bit of meat. Yep. So how do, you, how do you deal with some of those dietary laws? I mean, New Testament says just don't need to sacrifice to idols, otherwise, you know, go Peter, kill me. But there are, in some of the Old Testament, you know, should I get my hair cut a certain way? Should women have to wear a hair covering? You know, some of these <clears throat> things that uh, might have some Old Testament law application that do we still carry this forward today? And yet we say we're not under law, we're under grace, right. so that we can dismiss that and then there's passages of the vision of the various types of animals that you know you can eat anything you want. Yeah I mean go ahead Jeff. You probably have to deal with this all the time in well, classes. So I, I have a, a metaphor for you. Okay. So let me start with what I think we tend to do. So I think we tend to, to mix up a situation that's complicated and confusing and there's a lot of stuff to weigh which Andrew was bringing up with something being not black and not white. Okay. And so here's a little metaphor, but it only works if you remember dot matrix printers. <laughs> so, you know a dot matrix printer prints little tiny dot, well I guess right. the screen's on the pixels on the screen, yep. right? And if you want to get the color gray, you can't print gray. You print black, white, black, white, black, white, black, black, white. And so when you look from a distance, if you imagine a gradient printed on a dot matrix printer, you're going to have some pretty clear stuff in the black and some pretty clearly white stuff. And then you're going to have a lot of stuff that from a distance looks kind of gray. But it's not. If you look up close, that's either black or it's white, or it's black or it's white, or it's black or it's white. And so similarly, we have a lot of situations that are plain, black, plain, wrong, plain, gray. And we have a lot of situations that are like, well, let's take some time and thought. But if you sit and think about it and you look at it up close, then you can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. and so I guess that's a metaphor I, I like to think of. Sometimes and so ultimately you're saying there is black and white. There is. But period. A lot of, period. But a lot of time what's happening when someone goes, ah, it's, yeah, it's kind of gray, it's, you know, yes and no, half and half. Mm -hmm. What's really happening is there's this kind of like, I don't know enough about this to know how to answer it. Hmm. Right? Um, it's complicated. And I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I think that's sometimes. And right there is a very good point. Um, 
the the scriptures tend to say this is very black and white at all times and as you I think you pointed out we're the ones that try to pour both colors into a pot and call it good because we either don't understand the complexity we can't see the complexity and I'm not sure Paul's addressing gray areas he's addressing sin versus holiness and you kind of have to go okay so you have holiness means pure and the whole idea of hagios is the uh, ultimately the Greek word holy but also the Greek word for sanctification versus sin which is anti anything holy you had a thought no, I just thought that um, it really is the issue of the heart so for you to do something might be just fine based on your relationship with Christ for me it might be sin based on that same relationship so often there's things that really are of the heart that we that are not necessarily a gray area but seem to be gray area because two different people have different convictions truly by the spirit of God being working differently in their lives true yet when it comes to defining sin we have to be so careful not to back away from that definition would you agree true I, I agree yeah and that's where I think often in our culture we're trying to not use that word because it makes people uncomfortable because we're telling people that they're wrong what you're doing is wrong and someone goes oh no come on don't don't judge me Well, I'm actually not judging you. I'm judging your behavior. Uh, and what you're doing is not honoring God. That is a... Go ahead. But I guess I just want to back up and say to believer to believer that yes. that is perfectly legitimate. Yep. But to an unbeliever, you can't tell them... Yeah. This is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, this is wrong, what you do, and this is, this is what is wrong, this is your behavior that needs to change, you know, maybe as a, a starting point to we're all sinners, and there are things that you are doing, and things that I have done that are wrong, you know, to kind of put in a spotlight so they understand the idea of sin, but I think what a lot of Christians want to do is tell people they're wrong, not so that... Um, not in a loving way, not in a way that's like will bring them to Christ, but as a condemnation. That's a great point because if, let's just use today's sermon, sola scriptura, if you have two people who disagree on that point alone, they're going to interpret everything differently because that foundation is not there. However, we can show the need for grace and the need for salvation from wrong behavior, from sinfulness against God and what is holiness. It's, it's a different point. Now granted, Paul is not writing to a group of non-believers. I think this is a handbook for the church. This is a handbook for us. Would you agree? And granted, there may be um, those that are not fully integrated, but they're at least open to the idea. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think it's about two one. You know, therefore, you have no excuse, old man. Every one of you who judges, or in fact, judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And you can also point out to somebody, you know, you say this is wrong, but don't you done that? Aren't you just yep. doing that? And you say it's wrong. Um, Right? In your own, in your own moral judgments, which means you have conscience. But um, so that, at least to that extent, it's like and this could be to the church still. You know, hey, church members, keep in mind, you yourselves still do these wrong things. Yep. Uh, you know, 
I was grappling with that. Oh, remember, man that I am, re remember I, this I whole. Keep doing it. Yeah, remember this symbol. If you, I point at you, I've got three fingers pointing at me. And that we have to remember that. Now, it's interesting. So I started looking into what, how Paul defines sin and slavery together. Because remember, that's what he's doing here. He's creating the metaphor of slavery, not just behavior. He's just saying it's, it's actual slavery to bad behavior, to anti-God behavior, versus slavery to God-honoring, God-righteousness behavior. Starting back in Jeremiah uh, chapter 4, verse 22, they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, while quoting Psalm 14, Paul writes, No one understands, no one does good. John 3.19, Jesus said, The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the life, light, because their deeds are evil. And then over in Galatians, I decided to just said go read it rather than write it all out. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 and following, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's like, <laughs> in other words, I could go on and on and on and on and on. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Then Jesus comes along, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other. You can't love God and money. Then in John 8, 34, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This is not a Pauline concept. It came from Jesus Christ himself. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we're all slaves to sin. Because we can't stop even though we're born again until we're perfected. Yes and no, but you have become a slave to sin and now you're a slave to righteousness once you have salvation and you're in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. We still have a sin nature. We still do bad things. In fact, we're going to really dive into that in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. He really goes in, but he has to set the foundation in saying, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. There's no gray area. You're one or the other. You're either pursuing holiness or you're not. That's kind of straightforward. And then what's so interesting is verse 17, Paul breaks into the doxology. He goes, thanks be to God, praise God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart. Notice what he says, obedient to the heart of the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Oh, I had to play around with standard of teaching. Uh, the King James uses the form of doctrine. Is how they translated it, which is actually an incorrect translation. It's closer to saying the standard of teaching. <clears throat> so what is that standard of teaching? Well, I found this amazing quote from Dorothy Sayers, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and she wrote a book years ago called Creed or Chaos where she goes and defines the seven deadly sins. 
The church names the sixth deadly sin as sloth. The world calls it tolerance. <laughs> I had to look at the copyright date going, when did she write this? 1949. The world calls itself tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. It is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. We have known it far too well for many years. The only thing perhaps that we have not known about it is that it is a mortal sin. Wow. People who say, eh, I don't need to know my doctrine. I don't need to know the tenets of the faith. It's whatever. Jesus died for me and that's good enough. I agree. At the same time, we who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. If you're not learning, you're stagnant. And you don't understand maybe how it is to live. Charles Spurgeon wrote, an unchanged life is the mark of an unchanged heart. And an unchanged heart is the sign of an unregenerate life. <clears throat> so the unchanged life, in other words, the person who just kind of says, yeah, I'm just going to live the way I've always lived, that's not any different. That's basically saying I can do whatever I darn well please, and I just bought some fire insurance at the Billy Graham crusade last week. That's how so many see the life of faith. The life of faith has demands for holy living. That isn't to say, and I think Mardet, you said it perfectly, we will never be perf perfect until we are in heaven. But at the same time, there has to be movement. There has to be an effort to show this and one way to look at that is to what we're talking about here is this concept or the paradox of being a slave to a master. And that master is God. So it says here, verse 18, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, that just sounds crazy talk. John 8.36, just a few verses after Jesus has said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. He wrote, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So in the same breath, he's talking about those who sin are slaves to sin, but if you come to me, you are free indeed, and then Paul comes along and says, yes, we are free. We can now be slaves to righteousness. Isn't that great? And Harry's going, wait. I'm not a slave to anybody. You can't tell me that. Well, Paul then clarifies it. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was just thinking, please, you're going to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord. But you're going to serve somebody. Right? You're going to be a slave to one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You're quoting a song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, it's the song by Bob Dylan called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And as I jokingly said to Lisa last night, because he was awarded the Nobel Prize, I guess it's okay for us to talk about it. Um, anyway, it is quite an extraordinary statement. 
I was actually I was actually telling Lisa, I wonder who's going to bring up the song in the class. Because <laughs> I wasn't going to. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we are free because we are free to choose. And I think we are choosing to serve our Lord in righteousness. Mm -hmm. Our sin nature, we don't have a choice. This is what our nature is. And if we just don't change and just stay there, we are a slave totally. Mm -hmm. But um, our choice is to serve Christ. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tack on to that because I wrote that in my notes and then wrote it out. I crossed it out. Because I had to, it's now, now we're going to get very theological for a moment. The divine sovereignty and human responsibility question. Are we choosing or did God choose us? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Carl. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> because there is that idea that God chose us as his slaves and forgave our sins. And we are so grateful, we will serve him for the rest of our lives with absolute joy and without even thinking about the fact that, or even trying to think, but I'm not free. Yes, I am. I'm freer than I've ever been. Because another question comes, well, did we choose it or did God choose us? And I don't have an answer. I just cross it out of my notes going, <laughs> I'm not quite sure I have that answer. I think we're all chosen, but we have this free will. We do. We do. We can reject. What I love is how Paul, in verse 19, addresses this a little bit. And he says, now, I know my illustration is imperfect. But I'm speaking in human terms. I'm trying to create a metaphor. Because you were, you were doing this earlier, and it's a, a perfect one with the dot matrix idea. But we are, have our, na our natural limitations in our understanding of this extraordinary divine proclamation and presentation of our righteousness. Because he writes, For just as you once presented your members yourself as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, now present yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. He doubles down again. He brings that idea that you are slaves to impurity, to lawlessness. And notice how, it's, how lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. One guy said, he, he was using an illustration, he said, have you ever been in a situation where you told a lie and everybody, if no one raises their hand in the room, they're all lying. <laughs> so you told a lie, and then you had to tell another one to cover up the lie that you told. And then you had to come up with another one because the lie that you told is now being unraveled. One guy said he was in an office situation where he told a lie, and by the time he was done, he had told 42 of them, trying to create a chain to protect his first lie. And then when the whole house of cards fell down, he just finally had to just throw up his hand and went, I've been lying the whole time. Everyone went, of course you were. Well, we couldn't nail you down because you were so good at telling more and more lies. And we had to keep unraveling this, this problem. The lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, of one sin leading to another. But now notice how he said he compares that from righteousness leading to sanctification. And the word sanctification here is hagiosmos, which translated as holy in other place, some other places, and as and as sanctification here in First Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 3 through 7. For this is the will of God, your hagiosmos, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentile who do not, do Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness, in hagiasmas, in sanctification, in holiness. And then over in Hebrews, we've got Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that word holiness is the Greek word hagiasmas. Strive for peace with everyone and for the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I found a good definition of sanctification from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Very interesting illustration, I shouldn't say, not definition, but an illustration. The generic meaning of sanctification outside of Scripture is the state of proper functioning. Now think of that for a second. What does that mean? It's something, it is a state of proper functioning. I'm going to turn on the light switch and it properly works. That means that light switch is sanctified. It properly functions. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for its intended use by its designer. A pen is sanctified when it is used to write. So I am now going to sanctify this pen on this piece of paper. It is now properly used as its designer intended. Eyeglasses are sanctified when used to improve sight. In a theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose that God intends. A human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design or purpose. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? This is how God designed it at creation. This was God's divine purpose. And sin came in and destroyed it. Yeah. God's purpose and holiness is greater than it goes a step beyond. You just use that pen for its proper function, but you can use that pen and it can function properly, and you can write filthy things that destroy young people Correct. all over the world. Correct. You can have eyeglasses and see things. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So God carries it out through so it's all pure. It's yeah. always that's why you have the one is a secular definition and the other is a theological one. So I, would, I could see that because obviously all illustrations break down at some point. Um, well, uh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, maybe the point is that the pen is sanctified in this larger sense when it's unified with or connected to a body that's okay. connected to a heart and a soul that okay. is sanctified. That would not be writing vile that would not and be horrible thing because it is things, it right? is sanctified via its original intender and right. designer. So, Good so point. So there's a proper functioning, but there's yeah. also a, a unity, right? That's yeah. part of that idea. That's good. That's good. I think that helps us as a class, as a group, understand sanctification even better. Because that's, you know, that's one of these $20 words that we come up with and we go, oh yeah, we all agree with that. Uh-huh, yeah, fine. I'm being sanctified. Okay. What does that mean? Carl? I just was thinking, it's like Genesis and Revelation. Genesis is what it was designed to do and Revelation is where it's put back to where it was designed to be in Genesis. Which is why the other Yeah, it's a full story. Yeah, it comes full circle back to where sure man, it was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And perfect example. Yeah. The scriptures give you that same concept. And this is where we're all going, guys. This is where we 
back to the garden, back to where we yeah. really started. Very good. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So, verse 20, he says, So when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time? Well, he answers the question because from that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed, your fruit was shame. That was the fruit of the sinful behavior. And then he keeps going in verse 22, and he says, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, he kind of just bl throws that off very blithely, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. And we just read what the fruit of sanctification is, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's this, the contrast is so dramatic. We tend to sometimes forget it. William Barclay quoted the uh, Stoic philosopher Seneca and said, to be enslaved to oneself is the heaviest of all servitudes. And I have to say this in my judgmental way, but I often see that the main problem in our culture is narcissism. It's like, it's all about me and what I believe and what I want and oh look at me, take a picture of me and this is, you know, look at me, I am worth something. And if you don't look at me, I'm not worth something. How is, that's just so twisted. How do we get to this point? But it, it's all bases that servitude is servitude to the self and the self is the self nature is a sinful nature so your servitude is to your sin nature there's really no other way around it then Christ comes in through the grace of God and says I am saving you from all that you don't have to think about yourself anymore you're not important. In God's eyes, you are very important. You're an adopted son or daughter of God. But in the how you live and breathe and take your worth has nothing to do with whether people are looking at you. See, the, the slavery of this world is that, that we want to be thought highly of, right? We want that affirmation, we want that, that name. Yes. Yet, if you look back at history, all these great names, people who left whole civilizations, nobody knows them today. Yep. But being a child of God, being adopted as family, gives you a name written on his palm, and it's for eternity. Yep. That's all that matters. But but we still strive to have people recognize us and give us an award. And we set up awards sometimes just so we can keep affirming each other. You know, um, it's fruitless. And yet where I think the body of Christ can come alongside that is to key off of something that you were saying about saints alive. Of the idea of a collection of believers can come alongside and affirm each other and love one another and build one another up because it's not about me, it's about you. And that back and forth is what helps build the body of Christ. H.L. Hunt, the great oil tycoon, was once asked, so how much is enough? And he goes, oh, money? That's just a, an effort for us to rank our worth. So if I have more money than you, I'm better than you. And that's just, that's how we count it. I mean, why do we post the top 100 billionaires in Fortune or Forbes magazine or whatever? Because we want to see who the wealthiest one is. And, oh, he dropped two places. Something must be wrong with him. I remember I once calculated the, value, the, worth, of, the, the worth of one of these guys' estates. And a, a new stadium had just been built somewhere for $250 million. <clears throat> and he had enough money to build 10 of them and have half his money left over. <laughs> Holy 
milk. That's just outrageous numbers. It's craziness. And yet we place value on that. Why? Why? As one fellow wrote here, he said, ultimately, we don't make ourselves slaves to God, to use the comment of, are we making ourselves? We have been enslaved to God. Behind these passive verbs is the work of God. And this is what happens under grace. When Christ is our righteousness by faith, the grace of God enters us mightily and breaks the power of canceled sin and transforms us in the renewing of our minds and writes the law upon our hearts, gives us a new spirit, and inclines us to the word of God and causes us to see the beauty of Christ and his ways as the treasure of our lives. Isn't that a beautiful way of phrasing it? I saw it one other way. I'm going to write this on the board because I just thought it was so perfect and brilliantly stated. I almost had no other way to say it differently. We are saved from sin Enslaved by grace. Think of that for a second. We are saved from sin, but we have become slaves to Christ, to God, by grace. This is a gift. And when you turn to verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Slaved by grace. You had a thought? Yeah. yeah. Just thinking of how in our heads the slave thing is so negative. But work is very positive. We even ask everybody when we meet them, what is what do you what do? do, you do? As yeah. a form of what do you devote yourself to? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So everyone acknowledges someone is devoting, someone is devoting themselves to what is it? I want to know. What are you devoting yourself to? What is your career, your work? Good it becomes good an work. identity. Yeah. It becomes our identity of what we do, but we're not doing it for ourselves. It is on behalf of someone else who's paying us. Even a self-employed Even a self-employed person <laughs> has clients. You're not paying yourself for your own work. That would be weird. <laughs> wouldn't last very long. Here's this verse, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, which is extremely famous. It's, you know, it's almost cliched. I have a little chart at the bottom of the page for you that you can look at in your own meditation, but it shows the genius of Paul when he contrasts one with the other in this verse. I mean, it's just so brilliantly done. The wages of sin versus the free gift. And it, that word wages is only used, I think, four times in the New Testament, and it's always talking about someone paying a laborer. So you want to labor for sin? Yeah, you're going to get paid. Um, you're probably not going to like it, but you will be paid. And then the free gift, that is the Greek word charisma. We translate it as two words in English, but in Greek it is one word, charis, grace, and ma, the result of something. So it's the result of grace, and we translate it here as free gift. The charisma of God. You almost want to say, let's take the English out. Let's put the Greek back in here. Because doesn't that sound even more extraordinary? The charisma, of course, we think of charisma as 
they glow or someone has a great personality. But this is the charisma of God, his free gift, his grace is what is paid to us. And it costs us nothing. We don't have to work our way to get it. We don't have to follow 613 rules. We don't have to wear our hair a certain way, as you mentioned, or wear a certain type of clothing, or drink a certain drink, or, you know, vote a certain way. That has nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. It's a free gift of God, and that gift is eternal life. Acts 16.31 Therefore, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time to focus on what is a bit of an uncomfortable topic of slavery and how we would even view that in our own lives because we're so independent. We tend to work really hard in being independent of you. But to be reminded so dramatically that we will either be a slave to sin and its destruction or we will serve you with joy and thus have eternal life and complete freedom in all that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.